It's been a while, we've been down, now it's time we change the score. Breathe in the air, be who we are. Who would have thought we'd come so far? Taking a while, but I'm found we keep on wanting it more. Never before I feel so much love. Ready to live this life above the Yeah.
Thank you very much. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Alchemist Theater, where we know that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It's got to be transformed. As modern-day alchemists, we are intentionally here to transform fear into love. Alchemist movement is all about the idea that fear is real, but it's not the truth. And we're here to bring you back to the truth in as many different ways as possible. Tonight's theme is Refuge, and it's gonna be featuring some speakers from Action that you heard starting off the show. Give it up for the speakers, Wendy and Don. They're such an important part of the show tonight, and it's our honor to have you. You're, we're going to have two more poems from them tying this whole show together. And of course, from the novelists Eric Anderson and Miguel. They've got a big tour blast-off show <laughs> happening October 6th at Barley Ranch. Anything you want to say about that, Eric? Uh, we do have some tickets for sale tonight. Discounted pre-sale rate of $15 in the lobby. If you get a ticket, you get a free CD and a, a, a hug and a kiss from Miguel. All right. He's like, hey. And all the gay men line up like, he's pretty. All right, so, and the ladies too. Um, round of applause for anyone it's their first time in the house tonight. Don't be afraid. I'm not gonna call on you. Thank you so much. At Alchemist Theater, we are an interfaith show. Uh, we don't care what you believe in, whether you call God a he, she, and it, a higher power, or maybe you're not even in with that whole higher power thing, but you just like personal growth and you're here to find a better version of yourself. Whatever you get down with, we get down with it too. All we ask is that you understand that you're here tonight for a reason, that you answered a divine calling to be here, and that there is a healing, a message, or a piece of wisdom in this room for you tonight. So that we hope that you look within the lyrics, the music, the talks, the sermons, the poetry, or perhaps even in a moment of silence deep within you to find the answer that this universe is trying to bring you tonight. So with that, as alchemists, we believe that our words and our intentions absolutely affect our reality. So we're going to ask you to take everything off your lap, to uncross your body, and we're going to bless this show tonight. So enter into that space. Whatever your spirituality is, go there now and meet it there. And we're going to start tonight with a meditation and a prayer. Bye. 
place called within. And we just ask, Father, Mother, God, Holy Spirit, creator of the divine universe, the great mystery, thank you for coming to the table. We come to the table and you come to the table and then we realize you were at the table the whole time. God, thank you so much for meeting us in this space. God, we know that you are the one truth, the victory. That your love is all there is, is all there is, is all there is. And from this place of knowing that you are infinite, we can know that we are one with that infinite one. And from our infinite nature, we know that we are blessed, that we are worthy, that we are deserving of all good things, health, wealth, love, and art. And we express more and even more. And God, we ask you to clear all blockages from our hearts and our path that prevent us from feeling the worth that we are in your kingdom. God, bless the show tonight that all people here receive, receive exactly what they need. God, thank you for choosing us to do the hard work in this lifetime and bless that hard work to make it peaceful and easy so that we may look into the inner parts of ourselves and remember who we truly are. And because we are already all of the blessings, all of the wisdom, and all of the healing that we seek, we can relax and let go, for we know our good is always coming to us. And so we live in gratitude. We say, God, thank you for this path. Thank you for this now moment, and thank you for all moments that have existed to create the present, for it is the only true moment. And from a place of total surrender, knowing this prayer has done its work to remind us of the truth, we climb to the top of the Sierras, these magical crystal mountains, and we let this prayer blow away in the wind. And so it is. Aho. Amen.
moon, I don't have a place to move to. You know, they're all too, too expensive. expensive. Okay, so don't you got a job? Yeah, I did. It didn't work out. Oh, uh, why don't you just get another, get another job? Yeah, you say that like it's nothing. I mean, it's not as easy as that. You know, there's getting there if you even find one you're qualified I'm for. Sorry for yeah, yeah. I found mine. In yeah, one day. one day. Yeah, when you have a specific skill and a trade, it makes it a lot easier. You know. Well, I worked hard. I guess yeah. you just must be you lazy. lazy. Yeah, I'm always doing stuff. Don't call me lazy. You know, I've been homeless for a while. You know. I, I just don't see why you just can't go out and get yeah, it. Yeah, get it, get it, yeah. Well, let me tell you something. You must have never been homeless before. That's wrong. I've been homeless for three days and slept in my car for about a week. Oh, yeah, I see a car. You had a place to call your own. No problems, you know. Well, let me tell you, I was homeless for a lot longer than three days, and I didn't have a car, friends, money, phone, you know. I had to wake up at sunup, find somewhere to even put my stuff, think about what to wear if I had anything clean up for... So you, have, so you did have a job, right? Well, eventually, yeah. Took forever, though. I mean... What about the shelter? You never went to go check in the shelter? No. No, the shelter doesn't work for me. No, I hear it. How much is it at the weekly? Well, the weeklies go for like five... You know, I was trying to move out and I found a weekly for $560 a month for two weeks. And that was local price. No, that gotta be cheaper than that. You gotta break it down in increments of weeks. No, no, no. Yeah, maybe 150 a week 20 years ago. Uh, when it's I was like back in 20 years ago, it was going for $45 a night. Yeah, now it's like $85 a night at least, plus room tax, key, application if you apply for good enough, deposit. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't even think, of, think about yeah, what you're going people, through. Yeah, people don't think about it, but... But how can I be more involved? How can I get to help people out? Act locally, you know, share it, tell people about it. What about the vets? Well, there's a lot of same, same similar programs for vets, but you run into the same problems. There's not enough. Man, I wish my family wouldn't go through nothing like that. What if it happened to my kids, my daughter, my son? It, 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 it can, can and it will. You, you don't know. You have to be prepared for it. For our forefathers, we put up a fight for this. Everybody got to be equally opportunity, equally yoked. Yeah, you think there'd be equal opportunities, but there's not. You know, if you don't have a job, you don't have an address, you don't, even if you have an address here in this town, Employers look at that address and they're like, no, no, 335 Rugged Street, I'm not hiring you. So United We Don't Stand? I think, it looks like everybody's divided and fell, so what can we do to change this? Ask the people for help. How? Get them more involved. Tell them more questions, tell them our life stories. Yeah, but if it hasn't affected them, it doesn't affect them, so they're not worried about it. They see how it affected us. You think it'll, think it'll make a difference? We do. Are you sure? Positive. Stand up and rise. Stand up and rise. United we stand. Thank you. Thank you guys. Have a good night. All right. That was beautiful. Powerful. How you guys doing? emotional in here tonight like sometimes the show is very cerebral for me but I think it's this angelic voice right here and while I was praying you guys I could see my little seven-month-old baby looking at me through the windows in the back right there and it just and the speakers tonight and the theme of refuge man we picked these themes a year and a half ago <clears throat> so I have my notes up here because what I'm gonna share tonight is so important to me. I'm gonna be talking about something that seems like it has nothing to do with the topic tonight, Then I'm gonna bring it back around, of course, like I always do. So if I could teach the world one thing, it would be the concept of learning to become self-referencing. 
Now, self-referencing is an interesting concept. It's a practice of a way of living. It's a shamanic way of living in which there, it's accepted that there is no universal right way to live. And in fact, all shamans, because there is no universal right way to live, they become self-referencing. So for all decisions they make, instead of looking to their culture, their peers, um, their elders for information about what to do, they look within. And that's the art of being self-referencing. If you're not quite sure that makes sense to you, here's how I explain it to my seven-month-old baby. I tell him, Aslan, listen to your insides. That's how you become self-referencing, to listen to your insides, to be uninfluenced from outside. Now, the idea of a completely self-referential culture, meaning where all individuals live their life in a self-referential way, instead of by influence of the Kardashians or anyone else, the idea of an entirely self-referential culture is triggering for people. And here's why. I came up with three triggers. One, we are uncomfortable accepting information we receive from our intuition as valid. Two, we believe that if we don't pressure people into a universally accepted way of living, humans will just resort to chaos and disorder. And three, we are uncomfortable when someone else's lifestyle or belief system challenges ours in a way that reminds us that we could be living differently. Because so many of us get stuck into a rut of we don't have a choice. I'm living this way because I don't have a choice. I'm not quitting my job because I don't have a choice. Things like that. Now a lot of people, the, those without resources, those at risk, don't have choices. But so many of us walk around saying that we don't have choices. We don't like the idea that something isn't right for me and could be right for someone else. And so we go around trying to change the someone else. And unconsciously, we're scared of the metaphysical implication that there is no universal right way to live. On some level, that freaks us out. But we have no idea that this is actually the best news ever. That it's total freedom. But what it requires is this. You have to learn to become responsible for your own triggers. Triggers are medicine, and this is what we don't know. We don't understand and we're not taught that our triggers are our medicine. And that when we take responsibility for our wounds and our triggers, our life grows and we expand. So instead of taking responsibility for our own triggers, we actually just try to change the trigger. Right? Yeah. We try to control something that is outside of not only our metaphysical ability to control, but also our ethical right to control because we can't handle our own triggers. So let's tackle one at a time. First, we're uncomfortable with accepting information we receive from our intuition as valid. That is because at some point in your life as a young kid, you had a feeling about something and someone you looked up to told you that was crazy or that you were wrong. And depending on how triggered they were by the fact that you were using your intuition as a guide, as a compass, they may have shut it down in a really scary way, teaching you not only that you couldn't trust your intuition, but actually that you should consider your intuition an enemy. Which is why our modern day American culture finds it so hard to make a decision. Because our internal compass is pointing us one day, one way, and all of the Instagram influencers are pointing us another way. <laughs> 
I know, it's the most millennial thing I've ever said. <laughs> so we cannot make a self-referential society if we don't begin to retrain ourselves fearlessly to listen to our intuition and to support others when they do the same. All right, number two. We believe that if we don't pressure people into a universally accepted way of living, humans will resort to chaos and disorder. And because of that, we try to control people. We try to control their sexualities, their gender expressions, and how they live. If we don't make being homeless as painful and miserable as possible, then those homeless people just won't try. So our capitalistic culture has to put as much pressure on the homeless to conform to our way of doing things so that they'll try because that is our fear. And it's selfish, and it's rooted, and something that is not fair. It's as if we are all experts in social psychology, as if we even know how to motivate someone else, or we even have an idea of what someone else's better life looks like. Well, I'm just trying to inspire them to better their lives, as if your better life fits someone else. Have you ever tried to wear someone else's shoes and they just don't quite fit right? That's what we're doing. We're trying to push people into our way of living because we are uncomfortable when someone else's way of living shows up. We also have a capitalistic interest in making sure people file in line. I'm sorry, I'm getting heated tonight because this <laughs> is a big thing for me. And finally, the third and my personal favorite, we are uncomfortable when someone else's lifestyle or belief system challenges ours in a way that reminds us we could be living differently. Brothers and sisters, our nation runs on the fuel of capitalism and frankly, the homeless are a constant reminder that it's possible to live without things. Amen. And some of them are pretty damn happy. dragging stones up the 1% pyramid and triggered by the reality that maybe, just maybe, there's another way to live. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm not saying that this applies to all homeless people, but I am saying that some people prefer time over things. And that bothers the rest of us who sell our time. Now here's the thing, your triggers are your responsibility, but instead of training our population to understand what a trigger is and how to heal it, we waste, literally waste, all of our time trying to change the trigger. People are triggered by gender nonconformity because it tells us that something that we were told is rigid and in, con in concrete written in stone is in fact not rigid or written in stone. And the base, it's like a little earthquake seismic size four in our cultural epistemological understanding of what reality is starts to shake and we don't like it and so we try to stuff people into what it means to be a man or a woman and we're bothered when they don't fit into it people are triggered by non-monogamy because it tells them that this thing that we've been fed that the nuclear family is the best and only way to live is not in fact the only way to live and that bothers us, because if you're not comfortable with listening to your insides, when someone else's insides are different than yours, you get upset. 
And finally, people are triggered by homelessness because it's proof that we don't need things. Our capitalist overlords have told us that we need to be happy. People want time and not things. And for someone who's been selling their time to a pharaoh, that's a problem. And so we make being homeless as miserable as possible so that people will just get in line and stop messing with our reality. And I'm not saying that this fits for everyone. There is no one right way to live. That is my message tonight. There is no one right way to live. If your way of living is nonviolent and based on consent and you are listening to your insides, then that is your right way to live. But the system, thank you. But the system has a vested interest in making homelessness as miserable as possible because, um, well, if we figure out that we don't need things, then we're gonna stop buying things. And if we stop buying things, we're gonna realize we don't have to work as much. And if we stop working as much, and we simply just walk away halfway up the pyramid carrying the stone, and we decide to go back into the jungle and grow our own food, well, they're screwed. And so they need us to keep living the way that they're living. And anything that upsets that version of that reality that you would be happier in your grind, by the way, last month we presented the grind, and guess what? The theme carried over for me. <laughs> now this, again, I want to emphasize, this doesn't mean all people. If you are happy in your grind because your insides are telling you to be in that grind, then that is meant for you. That is meant for you, but it's not meant for everyone. And if we want to experience what true refuge is, then we have to do two things. One, we have to learn to sit inside the refuge of our insides, and two, we have to help other people live their insides too. Yes, and so right now, we need to figure out a way. Thank you. How can we support other people in listening to their insides? How can we gather as a tribe and as a community to help people figure out what they want in their life instead of trying to fit them into ours. Because this world is made of outliers. The status quo has to have outliers in order to even be the status quo. And what would this world look like if instead of different lifestyles triggering us, we were inspired? That we actually encouraged our children to go look at other lifestyles and figure out if that worked for them or not. Yes, thank you, Mama. <laughs> and when they come back home like, Mom, that didn't work for me, then we're like, great. Way to listen to your insides. Let's try something else because it's okay to fail. And it's okay to make a decision and then make a new one when that decision wasn't working for you. Yes. You know, people always tell me, Jet, they think it's so funny and everyone thinks they're original when they say this. And if you're one of the people who have said this to me, sorry, you weren't the only one. When we had a baby, people thought it was so funny to say to me and my partner, what are you going to do if your baby turns out to be like this conservative Wall Street, like capitalist mogul, like Alex Keaton from Family Ties? They all say it. And you know what I say? I will tell him, baby, as long as you are listening to your insides, the mommy will handle the triggers that comes up for her with that. Have fun in New York. And, um... Call me when that gets old for you. <laughs> All right, so I just wanna end on this note. I want us to begin thinking about 
how comfortable we are exploring our insides, how comfortable we are looking at other ways of living and allowing that to either pull us further into a new way of living or more comfortable in our way of living. I saw another way to living and I went, nope, you know what, I want more. I want access to a job so that I can buy more things for my family because I value travel and I wanna travel. That's okay. It's all about what your insides are telling you to do in a non-violent, consensual way. And then from there, coming together as a society to say, how can we support others who don't fit in to the system as we have made it? So right now, we're gonna head into a part of the show called the alchemy. This is where we kind of get out of our heads and move into our hearts via a guided meditation. So Eric, my love, would you play me something safe? Slower. Really sparse. Brothers and sisters, go within. Become outrageously present, which is my new favorite concept. You're in this room. You're at Alchemist Theater. We are in a place of refuge. You're sitting in a chair. You're hearing this beautiful music. You're breathing deeply. I want you to travel from the blackness of your mind into the darkness, the womb of your heart. And there you will find three chambers. The chamber to your left is white. You reach into your pocket and you find a white key. You head to the chamber, you slip the key in, and you open it. And inside this chamber, you find information about a piece of your insides that you haven't been fully expressing. Right now, the Spirit is showing you a piece of who you truly are and what your purpose is. Something that may go against the grain of the status quo and it may go against society. But here you are in this first chamber, listening to your insides. you've received that information you take a piece of it with you storing it in your heart as you exit back out into the blackness skipping over the chamber in the dead middle and heading to the chamber on the right this chamber is bright blue this chamber comes with a golden key. You slip the key out of your pocket and it opens the door. You head in and inside you receive information for something that you have previously judged. Stay neutral, don't beat yourself up. We all judge, we're human. But right now the universe is showing you something that you've judged either in yourself or someone else or in the culture. And right now, a bright light floods the chamber 
flooding your consciousness and your heart, clearing away what previously weighed you down with the gravity of judgment. And as you've been As your heart has been unweighted, you head back out to the void, the blackness of your heart, turning to face the chamber in the dead center, and this is the most powerful chamber you've ever seen. Inside your pocket, you find a key made of light, or maybe it's a rainbow. And as you put it in the chamber door, Stepping in, you are completely flooded by the light of the holy benevolent universe. And right now inside your heart, you are receiving the answers for how you are to be of service to the community as we attempt to build a world into a place of refuge for all. a service and an act and a way to show up for your community and right now you are receiving the information for how you are to move forward maybe it's having a conversation with an at-risk youth maybe it's making food for the homeless maybe it's buying land and creating a community where all people can live their insides The appearance of disorder and chaos is an illusion, for we know that nature is always in balance and that God has put children on this earth who are here to manifest a refuge because we have been scared for too long and now we come home. Amen.
It's like imagining a mental conversation from a long distance relationship. Old stories were told here, taking the voices away from the walls that once spoke feelings, the windows that used to be the eyes of the soul, and the foundation of our footings, now empty lots. We stand under the shell of a pole. Which Nevada soils where families grew, slept, and sunk their roots, now dirt lots. Paved asphalt that engulfs our memories and keeps our forward progress dormant. One line pole outlines shadows that were dreams and prayers made. This There's one line pole is built in the hallways of my past, but led me to my master bedroom of my destruction. The one white picket fence is now blueprints for casinos and fast money. Realizing I'll never be able to sit on the porch and watch the apple seeds grow. They were invented in families tradition a long time ago. This one light pole is directly where my daughter's room used to be, now casting shadows of her dollhouse dream catcher and my chair I used to read her bedtime stories in. Her laughter can no longer echo without walls. My daughter can no longer look out the window and wish upon a fallen star. But in this, this darkness, one, comfort is now feared. This, this one, one light pole sheds no meaning on the de developers creating ghost towns, dust storms of emotions, families burdened with sudden displacement. This one light pole sheds no light on, on the 20 motels and homeless families that were destroyed to give this one, one light pole life. Where does my daughter, son, and neighborhood children play? Dear light pole, how can you be the light if you created this darkness? Or is the darkness the only key to your existence? You've rearranged our furniture, taken the trash out from the past, but left only one, one light, light pole is the answer from the developers. This, this one, one light pole is a dark veil that keeps things at bay. It, it doesn't, doesn't mean, mean we can't see. see. During the day, as knowledge and justice won't go away, the same empty lot where my dreams, prayers, and wishes upon falling stars were made. This, this one, one light pole stands directly where my dreams were built. This, this one, one light pole, pole stays where my family photo album was put together. A light usually is a sign of someone's home, sometimes hope. How can this light pole be in the same place by the same people who have clearly ensured that no one is home, taking the hope out with this one, one light, light pole? pole. through a tent. <laughs> How y'all doing? Yes! Yes! Spirit is in the house tonight. So we begin this evening with a story from the Bible. Now the Bible sometimes reads like an episode from days of our lives. <laughs> what is the evil Satano up to today? <laughs> and other times it reads like an episode from Game of Thrones. This story is one of those episodes. <laughs> In the Book of Kings, we meet the prophet Elijah. And Elijah is having a grand old time. He has been tasked with going to the kingdom of Israel and converting everyone to Yahweh. In order to make this happen, he goes head to head with the prophets of Baal. And the 450 prophets of Baal and lowly one Elijah have a standoff. Which God is bigger? 
And so they lay some sacrificial meat upon a pile of wood, and they pray to their gods to light the wood to burn the offering. Now Elijah is one cocky SOB. He even lets the prophets of Baal go first. Just go ahead. Go ahead. I'm gonna be over here. Just, you know, just over here. Yeah, go pray. And they do. All 450 prophets of Baal pray all morning, noon, and night. But nothing. Elijah is so cocky that he walks up to the prophets and goes, So, uh, hey, where's your God? Is he asleep? Is he off relieving himself? What's he doing? Oh, he's got something uh, better to do than uh, listen to your prayers. Ah! <laughs> well, it's safe to say that Elijah prayed to God to light the wood, which I might add, the prophets of Baal put water on, cheating, and the wood caught fire. The water-soaked wood caught fire, and then it turned into the Red Wedding. Because Elijah took all 450 of those prophets down to the riverbank and he killed them! All of them! Jezebel heard that she lost all 450 of her prophets and she was not happy. Mm -mm. It was a bad day for her. <laughs> and so she decided to send a passive-aggressive note. <laughs> Dear Elijah, in 24 hours, I'm gonna kill you. I mean, I'm gonna do it personally. I will have others do it. But do what they shall, and you will be dead. <laughs> now, when Elijah stood up and against the prophets of Baal, he assumed that when he won and demonstrated the might of Yahweh, that the people of Israel would flock to convert to his ways. They were not amused. They didn't care. They didn't convert. And then all of a sudden he gets this note in the mail that tells him that he's going to be killed in 24 hours. And so what did he do? What did the mighty prophet of God do? He ran away. He fled. He was like, bad. I am staying around for this. And he fled into the wilderness even though he was God's cherished prophet, even though God had used him for a number of miracles, including raising the dead. And he moved into fear, and he fled, and he went into the wilderness, and he cried up to the heavens, God, I am a failure. I am an utter failure. Take my life. I don't want it anymore. I am so weary. I am so tired. I am done. Just kill me. And under a juniper tree, he fell asleep, and he was visited by an angel who awoke him and said, Eat and sleep. And so he did. And the second night, he awoke and was visited by an angel who told him to eat. Now, that's my kind of touch by an angel. <laughs>
you eat. Get on! I am that humble servant. I shall do. Oh, you want me to sleep too? Pray to you all the damn day. The angel has instructions for Elijah. And he says, you are to go across the desert, traveling for 40 days and 40 nights. To which Elijah said, oh no. No way, Yahweh. I remember the last time he sent somebody in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. I ain't going out like that. As you can tell, this is a very loose telling of the story. And the angel said it was different this time. It was different. Be nourished. Go. Go to Mount Sinai, and the Lord has some words for you. And so fortified, Elijah treks across the desert, only full off of the food the angel gave him, which in hindsight, if he had known that, he would have packed a doggy bag. <laughs> and he makes it to the mountain on time. And in a cave at the base of the mountain, Elijah is visited by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit asks, what are you doing? Ooh, and Elijah was in it. Oh, he threw a temper tantrum. He was like, Holy Spirit, they defy you in the kingdom of Israel. They break all your covenants. They destroy your altars. They don't believe in you. I'm the only one doing this work. Not true. And now they want to kill me. I'm done. This bullcrap. I'm over it. And the Holy Spirit says, climb to the top of the mountain and the Lord will appear to you and give you word. To which Elijah, of course, responds, man, can't God just talk to me here freaking across the desert and now you want me to go up a goddamn sorry mountain? No, it's fine, it's fine, it's great, it's the journey, yeah, I love it. Okay, so, Elijah scales the mountain. He arrives at the top. And then, a mighty wind begins to bellow. And it blows rocks off of the mountain, but Elijah notices that in that wind, God is not there. And then Elijah feels the earth begin to quake beneath him. But God is not in that earthquake. And then fire erupts from the sky. But God is not in that fire. And after the fire, there is what is described a terrible silence. And in that terrible silence, Elijah feels the presence of the Lord. And in a gentle whisper, the Lord speaks to Elijah. What are you doing here? 
And when Elijah once again unburdens his heart of all the calamities that he has experienced, God puts him to work. That's not the end of the story of Elijah. There's a few other fabulous things that happens to him along the way. But I love the story of Elijah. One, because it demonstrates that God is a sassy mofo. <laughs> God asks Elijah, Elijah a question. He then scales a mound only to be asked the same question. But this time Elijah was actually listening. He heard it differently. Now, Jesus is my homeboy, but Elijah's my spirit animal. <laughs> Does anybody connect with that story? Has anyone witnessed themselves the miracles of spirit? Has anyone here been used as a vessel for God's work? And you're riding that high. You're special. You're chosen. You're anointed. And then you crash into a massive spiritual depression that makes you question everything you have ever done, all of your choices, everything about you, and you just want to give up. You just want to be done. You are so weary. You are so tired. You think, I cannot take any more. God, just take me. Just take me and be done with it. I felt that way. I felt that way many times. Many, many, many times. It's interesting. I was at Denise Sheehan's house for the fall equinox and the home team and the erection of the Dreamweaver and it was, or Dreamcatcher, it was beautiful and it was amazing. Woo! And Brian Melendez was there, and he led us through a meditation that I will never forget. And he said one of the most prophetic phrases I have ever heard in my entire lifetime. The Holy Spirit doesn't give a shit about your feelings. <laughs> and when he said that, it struck a chord that reverberated still to this day. Because I think sometimes we think our words don't matter. I think sometimes we think our prayers don't matter and what we put out into this universe doesn't matter. And so we ask God to use us. We ask God to be a servant for the work that is to be done. We pray to have a divine purpose. We pray that we are used to do good in this world without any qualifying statements. And spirit's impersonal. Spirit doesn't care. So you say spirit, use me, and spirit's like, great. You tell spirit, take my life, it's yours. Spirit's like, okay. Spirit's like, take everything from me. I only want you. I only want to know you. And spirit's like, great, I'll take everything. Not because I hate you, but because you asked. If you read most of the spiritual texts from the world wisdom traditions and mythologies, we sometimes think walking the spiritual path means that our life is going to be easy or manageable. If you read any of their stories, their life is terrible. Their story usually begins with their family being 
decimated, their home being destroyed, being displanted and put into another world, country, city, continent, living in complete fear and doubt of their life, and yet they endure. What I love about the story of Elijah is when Elijah is bearing his soul to the Holy Spirit, who of course already knows what is on his heart, the Holy Spirit listens. But what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit nourishes Elijah, recognizing that the physical body is important. The first thing the Holy Spirit did was feed him and make him sleep. Beginning to build that sense of refuge within self. If this is our temple, if we're told to go within, what are we finding? And not just what are we finding on a spiritual level, but like literally what are we finding within? What are we feeding ourselves with? How are we taking care of ourselves? He was about to go on a 40-day journey through the desert. And he was in such fear that he hadn't eaten. He hadn't slept. He was in such fear. So the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, before speaking the word, told him to eat and sleep. And then when Elijah shared everything that was on his heart, the Holy Spirit didn't coddle him. The Holy Spirit didn't sympathize with him. The Holy Spirit didn't pat him on the back and go, oh, do you want a medal? Oh, I know, life's so hard, I know, no. The Holy Spirit told him to get back to work. The Holy Spirit reminded Elijah who he was. The Holy Spirit reinvigorated Elijah in his true divine purpose, which Elijah knew all along. It just required the presence of spirit to make Elijah aware of what he already knew and to set him back on his path. Have you ever looked outside of yourself for affirmation, confirmation of your path, of your journey, of your destiny? Yeah, like a lot. I am surrounded by psychic mediums and clairvoyants and shamans and angel talkers and earth talkers and rock talkers. I mean, everybody who could have some insight into your life. I mean, I read the R&R specifically for the horoscope. They are undeniably the best. Straight up, God comes down and writes the horoscopes for the Reno News and Review. But I often look for others to tell me what to do. When I'm in fear, I'm afraid of making a mistake. I'm afraid of choosing wrong, stemming from a fear of disappointing parents and parental figures in my life. And God is just another parental figure I'm afraid to disappoint. And even though we say things like, you're always going to be on your path, this isn't a mistake, it's a learning opportunity, you're always going to end up exactly where it is that you're going to go, we all have those friends who are super helpful that tell you those things. You're freaking out and they're like, you know, 
This is all part of the divine plan. Everything is unfolding as it should be. You are exactly where you need to be experiencing exactly. I know! I know! Man, I know! Got it! Just really want you to be my refuge right now. Just listen to me. That's what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit listened. The Holy Spirit didn't contemn Elijah or say, hey, Elijah, you shouldn't feel this way. Or, hey, Elijah, remember all those times when I used you as my prophet and showed you my wondrous miracles? All those times I proved to you my love for you? That's not what the Holy Spirit did because that's not what Elijah needed to hear. Elijah needed somebody to just be in his presence and listen. Be fully present and listen. And then after Elijah had unburdened his heart, set him right back where he left off. So when I was thinking about refuge, we often hear that we need to take refuge within, but it's like being in a yoga class and telling people to be mindful. We don't really teach people. How do we take refuge within? We can do a lot of the internal work, and I think Reverend Levity laid it out beautifully of some of the steps of how to build that intuition, that inner knowing, to listen to the still, small whisper of God within. But how do we find refuge within when there may be a storm of earthquakes and fire and wind brewing how do we find refuge within? And as I was looking, the Buddhists have this ceremony called taking the vow of refuge. See, to the Buddhists, taking refuge means fully and wholly committing yourself to the path. It means that you are 100% committed to your personal spiritual awakening. And when you take this vow of refuge, which is no small feat, it's not like you walk into a Buddhist temple and say, I would like to take the vow of refuge. I took it. I'm good. And leave the next day. Because you're making a covenant with God. Or the Buddha. Or Holy Spirit. Or the great mystery. Whatever it is that you connect with, you're making a sacred covenant that's not to be broken. So in the vow of refuge, there are three pillars, and these three pillars are what Buddhists lean on in times of uncertainty. When the world shakes them, it's what fortifies them, it's what gives them strength, it's what gives them courage. They lean on the Buddha, they lean on the Dharma or the teachings of the Buddha. And then they lean on the Shanga, the community of enlightened beings who have also taken the vow of refuge. Now, if you think about this archetypally, it's the outer, it's the inner, and the innermost. So the outer is some ideal authority or being it can be humanized, it can be historical or living. The inner 
are the teachings and practices and disciplines that come from that outer source. And then the innermost is those that hold you accountable, those who share sacred space with you, those that sit with you and listen without need, without judgment, that are able to hear you and guide you back on the path should you have faltered. And these three elements, the outer, the inner, and the innermost, fascinated me because you can take this model and apply it to pretty much any wisdom tradition, any faith, any religion. So if you're a follower of Christ, Christ would be your outer, your inner would be the gospel, that's the teaching that we're supposed to live by. And theoretically, the church is meant to be your innermost. The people that edify you, uplift you, support you, that hold you accountable to living the gospel. Look at AA. So AA is the outer. The inner is the 12 steps that you work. And then the innermost is your sponsor and the people who are in AA with you the people who are there to support you, to uplift you, to see you, to hear you, not to dole out advice, not tell you what you should do, but just to listen to your story, to your testimony, and how powerful that is. So then it made me ask a lot of questions. And I think when you walk this spiritual path, I don't really have answers. What I have a lot of times is questions. So I began to think about this outer, inner, and innermost, and I thought, can you have too many refuges? Refuge, plural. Too many places of refuge? Can you have too many? Because sometimes I wonder in the modern day world of hodgepodge spirituality, where we're taking something from here, taking something from there, taking something from somewhere else, and building our own spiritual practice, which is great because it gives us ownership and it gives us autonomy. But are we leaving out that important trinity of the outer, the inner, and the innermost? And when I began to think about it, does that facilitate a feeling of disjointed, of a fractured self? If we have not the same number of outers or inners or innermost, is it easy for us then to walk away when things get hard? So if we try something else, if we try a discipline or a teaching or a practice and we do it for a week and we don't see immediate results and we're kind of frustrated, we're kind of weary, and we're kind of downtrodden by the whole experience, is it easier for us to just walk away and say, that doesn't work, it's not for me? One of my teachers used to say that yoga is perfect, but we as humans are imperfect and we bring our imperfection to the yoga practice. So then I started thinking about yoga. I say I'm a yoga teacher. I teach yoga classes. That is one of my jobs. But in a traditional yoga teaching and practice, there are eight limbs to the inner. The postures are just one of those limbs. And if you don't practice the other seven, can you say you're practicing yoga? Can you call yourself a yogi? Are you reaping the benefits of these poses and postures? These poses are not for exercise. 
They're not for us to feel good. Remember, spirit doesn't give a shit about you feeling good. It's not about getting a good stretch on. It's not about breaking a sweat. In the traditional practicum of yoga, there were 23 postures, 22 of them were seated postures, one standing pose, and it was tree pose. The whole point of the physical poses, the asanas of yoga, is so that you can do seated meditation for long periods of time comfortably. That is what the yoga practice is about. And have we lost something by adding all these things? Again, these are just questions. I don't really know. I don't really know. I'm just asking questions. So then made me turn toward myself. What is my outer? What is my inner? And what is my innermost? What if I, like Buddhists do, when they take the vow of refuge, fully commit myself to one of the practices that I would say I have in my inner tool belt? Just one. What if I took 40 days and 40 nights and I committed to it day and night. That was my number one priority. And only that. How would it change my life? How would it connect me with the still small voice of God within? How would Elijah's story been different if he had his community? That when he lost faith that there were other prophets, which there were, he was not alone. That is just how he felt. But he had that community of people who heard him and went, man, been there. I hear you, I see you, and I love you. How that would have changed Elijah. Do you think the Holy Spirit might have just taken a step back and gone, my work's done. I use you. He didn't need me. He just needed someone to remind him. And when I thought last, about our world. What is our country's outer? What is our country's inner? What is our country's innermost? What is our world's outer? And what is our world's inner? And what is our world's innermost? Because right now, there is a lot of stuff going on. There are a lot of people who feel like they don't have a place of refuge. Not just a home, and not just a country to call their own, but a place to feel safe to tell their stories. A place to feel safe to share their pain, where they will be believed, where they will be trusted, where they will be supported, and then not immediately bashed down for coming forward, or criticized and judged that they should have done it sooner or that they should have done it in a different way. What would our world look like if we gave that trust instead of expecting people to earn it from us? What would our world look like if instead we walked first with feet of love and not distrust? What if we chose one inner, one practice to fully commit ourselves to and how that would change the storm brewing within us and could we sit in the discomfort of another and see them as whole and complete? What is your outer? And what is your inner? And what is your innermost? Thank you.